Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. All right, guys, here we are. This is Dudley instead of Bobby. Um, Where is Bobby? I think he's at the SHOT Show in Vegas. He is. We want to give a shout-out to to Bobby there. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to have to put him in a two-week quarantine. He felt like he – he told me he felt like he was swimming in a Petri dish. Uh, He he is (laughs) swimming in a Petri dish. That's why. But the good thing is SHOT Show, he said the the halls are packed. So everybody's out there doing business, showing uh, things yep. are going well. So yep. industry continues to grow. So good. That's good. We what, miss him. What about that story you were telling me this morning about the, the guy in the, on the airline? Yeah, um, <laughs> Shannon sent me, and uh, she, she pays attention to, like, uh, the, the Daily Mail over there. And there's an article where the TSA arrested a guy with an anti-tank rifle in his carry-on. <laughs> And they ran him down, and when they got to him, he's like, oh, I'm with the SHOT Show, and it's going to have a firing pin in it, and they just let him go. <laughs> so only in America, only traveling to the SHOT Show. Yeah. Wow. Cool story. Yeah. Hey. I don't think but, that'll happen in any other country. <laughs> no, but, I mean, without the firing pin, I think technically it's like taking a... No. They called it demilitarized, but every one of those guns at the SHOT Show have their firing pins removed. None of them are mechanically sound, so it's very safe. Yeah. And it's the SHOT Show. It's if you know, people cannot fathom how many, oh my goodness. miles and miles of guns and gun companies are at that show. It would it's, literally take you three days to walk by. Well, the booths. I heard I a stat, <clears throat> been years ago, and it's bigger now. That if you go to the shot show and you go with the intent to look at every booth, mm-hmm. and some of them are huge, you know, yeah, like houses. Um, if you walk the show starting the first day and you stop for about a minute to a minute and a half, somewhere around a minute, and look at each booth and walk to the next one. You can't quite do it in four days. There it is. There's that many booths. It's amazing. So we need to give a shout-out not only to Bobby, but to Daniel, to Jess, to Neil, to Chris, to Allison. I know I'm going to forget somebody. Icef out there holding it down for us. They are out there. They're doing that. They're the doing hand it. to hand combat while I'm and, and we're handling the rut for them, the uh, post rut. You know, right. that's what we can do to support them while they're not here. Yep. Right. I like it. I had my I had my granddaughter over there with my dad yesterday, so it was great granddaughter uh-huh. and great granddaddy, and filmed a little footage that just went family viral. It oh, was nice. incredible! That's yep. great. Yep, priceless, worth every bit of it. Family's always first. Oh, I love gosh. it. Mm. Um, well, we have been wanting to make this happen for a long quite time. some time, yeah. but uh, 
several of us became a big fan of the native habitat project mm-hmm. uh gosh it's it's been w- over a couple of years uh, yeah, now been watching him for a while and uh we've had all these people contacting us you got to have them on you got to have them on and now we've got them on. We finally we took cooked a big old pot of jambalaya and they showed up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so, that's like uh, hunting over a feeder right there. That's right. But uh, so we've got Kyle Liebarger and, and Jake Brown. All right. How's it going, y'all? Just a short three-hour drive over here. Not not too far. That's for not us. bad. No. How oh, good. No. It's funny. I I hear people on the phone say this. Like I feel like I know you, but I feel like I know you because I. See yeah. you on. See you all the time. See That's you right. all the time yeah. on but, the tick and uh, talk. Well, we've <laughs> so. we've met several times in person, Dudley. But I think uh, Mississippi Native Plant Meeting or whatever, and and uh, NWTF. So I think we've we've crossed paths several times in the past few years. But it's a uh, it's good to be down here in in Mississippi. So cool. Yeah. We appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Yeah. So we took them down to the nursery and goofed around for a while, and then we went to a, a nearby prairie. Uh, like a, a natural prairie site that's kind of near the nursery. And uh, we all geeked out and talked about cool plant stuff and nice dirt and oyster shells and all that fun stuff. Did so. I find those uh, Nautilus? Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, the yeah. ancient oysters. Is that an ancient oyster? I'm, I'm not a geologist, but I want to say it was some kind of oyster that's maybe 30 million years ago. It, or, it's yeah. a seashell. I can, that's all I can do. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, all, they're everywhere. It's amazing to think that, you know, when you find those, that those parts of the land were covered up in water at some point. It really is. Actually, if I think if you find those, it was covered up in a bunch of water. Deep. Yep. Yeah, so when you uh, – we're talking about the Blackland Prairie that is here in Mississippi mm-hmm. and Alabama. And if you zoom in or zoom out enough on a map where you can see both states. Like Google, like an aerial map. Like yeah. Google, Google, Google Onyx, whatever. And you see what looks like a crescent moon that yep. covers basically the top right of Mississippi and it bleeds into Alabama. And I think there's some pockets of, of it in Tennessee as well. But uh, It's almost like a glacier made it because it's just got that smooth mm-hmm. and it's got streaks in it. I mean, if you look at it like that, my mind has always gone to something something like a glacier came through and did that because it starts right there around Tupelo and goes – to the other side of Montgomery. Right. and uh, But it looks like a big crescent moon, and it very closely resembles some of those barrier islands that mm. you see offshore. That's what it looks like to so me. So this was all underwater, mil- you know, I, I don't know, 30 or 40 million years ago, maybe Long 200. But who's counting, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it was a shallow sea. And my understanding is that was like a reef or a barrier island. Wow. That formed that crescent moon shape. And then when the, you know, that was even shallower and, and the waters receded and left that stuff in place. So you've got all that marine life uh, and it just calcifies. And so we have this really limey soil um, that's higher in pH and a lot of trees and stuff didn't grow on it except mm-hmm. in the creek bottoms. Huh. And uh, feel free to butt in yeah. anytime, oh, guys. But uh, we were on one uh, over just across the line in Alabama. Uh, Jake and I got invited to. I guess this is this past spring, and uh, it had those chalky washes with all the oyster shells. And mm-hmm. we're standing there, and there's there's Mosasaurus vertebrae just laying on top of the ground. Hmm. It was and it was really cool. It was incredible. You have this this savanna with all these giant post oaks and native grasses and wildflowers, and there's just quail whistling everywhere. Wow. And there's a, a dinosaur skeleton on the ground. It's <laughs> insane. It's wow. like Jura- Jurassic Park. 
But that's kind of what we're wanting to talk about. Uh, I, I really want to start off just getting a background on y'all uh, so everybody can get to know you better. Um, a lot of us watch your videos, but I want to know a little bit more personal stuff about how y'all fell into this. And then maybe we can dive off more into just philosophizing about uh, na- yeah. all things native and prairies and yeah, savannas so, and everything. Well, uh, I, I guess uh, it was really a, an accumulation of different things that and interest that led me into, uh, I guess, uh, being interested in native plants. But I started out in college uh going to study wildlife and then i changed to forestry and so i went to alabama a&m got a forestry degree i was working for the state fish and wildlife at the time and right around 2017 i switched careers and where i graduated and got married and switched careers and started um, buying timber and i was a procurement forester and so i was on a ton of different private properties and i was seeing all sorts of different things uh like just any plant that i came across that I hadn't already learned in forestry school or, uh, you know, I didn't learn working for the state. I would take pictures of and just try to come home and, and figure out what plant it was. And so hmm. I started doing that for several years. Just I'd do a photo dump on Facebook just of all the different plants that I was coming across. And people seemed to be really interested in it. People started looking forward to seeing those seeing those uh, just posts of different pictures of plants that I was seeing. And uh, at the same time, I was managing properties for wildlife, too. I, was, I had a... Uh, a property that I hunted um, since probably 2010, and uh, and it was a limestone area. Just had a ton of limestone rock. Y'all, y'all have got some of those spots around mm-hmm. here, I think. But um, and I, I was trying to put in food plots and stuff, and and uh, cutting down cedars. And where I cut down those cedars just came up and all sorts of cool stuff. And I was like, that's. I think that's one of the moments that like flipped a switch. I was like, wow, like what what came up here just from the seed bank is better than anything I could plant in here. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course I, I could still improve that upon that, but I mean, it was, uh, what was there already just in the seed bank was incredible. And so that spot ended up being like, um, just a really cool limestone barren that just, you don't find in that area a whole lot. That's where I found Durand Oak for mm-hmm. the first time. And y'all have a ton of it down here, but mm-hmm. we, yeah. they're we everywhere. don't, we don't yeah. have it up in North Alabama. I mean, it never, never been documented in, uh, my part of North Alabama, the Moulton Valley. And so that was a cool find, but I had a botanist friend come out there and he was walking around showing me all this stuff. And, and, uh, we just, I think that just started it all right there. And so then I eventually started making, making videos and, and, uh, native habitat project became a thing, but that's kind of sort of the origin story. And Hmm. in the midst of that, my wife and I started a, a small backyard native plant nursery as well. So cool. Good for you. Yeah. Well, uh, Jake, how'd you fall into this? Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're sort of neighbors too, so okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what it is. Part, I, so. I, I, I just drag them around with me. Yeah, my neighbor was, had some TikTok followers, so I just said, "Hey, can I ride around with you?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I, um, I grew up uh, East Central Alabama, uh, just kind of the probably a lot of like most of y'all in here, just love outdoors all yeah. around, hunting, fishing, and uh, you know, you you mentioned earlier, it's talking about Kyle and seeing all his videos and it's like feel like you know him well you know it's I times 10 sitting in here in this room I know know the faces and voices <laughs> and and really you know Mossy Oak uh y'all are probably what inspired a lot of my passion for for wildlife management I mean y'all are one of the I 
that I know of, y'all are probably one of the only companies that uh, yeah. made land management and land stewardship kind of a mainstream thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's it'd be hard to quantify the impact that's made you know, mm-hmm. for private land managers. But, wow. but anyway, I got my brown nosing out of the way. But, but. <laughs> oh, it works. Yeah. Worked like yeah. a champion. Hey, just, Everybody's like, smiling yeah. over here. Yeah. You, uh, just, you just 12-ringed it, too. Because <laughs> that, that is near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Well, good to hear. But, uh, but yeah, so I ended up um, going, graduating high school, going to Auburn, and uh, I studied uh, civil engineering with an environmental emphasis, you know, all along. Still had that same passion for wildlife. Went still going turkey hunting down there in Tuskegee National Forest every time I got a chance, and mm. deer hunting when I could. And um, ended up graduating, went on, did the normal thing that engineers do, and uh, got on with a got on with a firm, and ended up you know doing the whole get your get your uh, PE you know professional engineering license, and and you know I'm I'm set, you know I'm 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 in it. This is what this is what I started it to do. Now I'm supposed to hit my stride, and you know it, we were. Doing all these, I was designing all these um, the resident, large residential and commercial developments, and you know what I'm doing, I'm I'm playing a part in something that's going 180 degrees right against what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm uh, developing these you know wetland areas and and uh, this beautiful farmland, and you know seeing all this this old timber get cut down, and I, there's you know there people need a place to live. I know there's a place for that, but. You know, I don't have to be a part of it. So, so anyway, it's, there's a lot of good things that happened. Um, I was very fortunate. You know, Kyle and I, and it's kind of a – I actually went over to Kyle's house. He, uh, like I said, I met my wife at Auburn. She's from the same town that, that Kyle's from. So we ended up moving back there. It was both easy for us to find engineering jobs in Huntsville. And, um, and so got up there and – I knew of Kyle. I knew he did all that stuff, and I'd put together like a land management plan. And I told Kyle I'd pay him a hundred bucks if he'd take a look at it and, and uh, tell me what I'm, you know, make sure I don't shoot myself in the foot. And he's like, "Hey, uh, this is this is okay, you know. Could, you know, if you ever if you ever want to do some of this on the side, I could I could use your help. And uh, man, I could really use somebody who can run a camera, and I could really mm-hmm. use somebody who could run a camera that's been around prescribed fire. And I was like, oh, dang it. I could help yeah. you out with that. That fits yeah. me. That fits me. Yeah, yeah it fits yeah. me. So I was like, hey, honey, I'm, uh, what do you think about me uh, quitting my job? <laughs> but, uh, it was weird. So yeah, well. It's, it's strange. I, I would have never thought a year ago, I would have never thought that I'd be sitting here. Yeah. Uh, a, a million social yeah. media followers yeah. later, you're here. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, and still, I mean, we probably need more people to help us. I think we Jake oh, yeah. started helping immediately, and it was like, he was like, hey, how, how do you even respond? He was getting like half the emails. He's like, how do you respond to all these? I'm like, yeah, yeah. you can't. Like, One at a time. It's yeah. too much. I mean, it's, yeah. it's – and so we probably need to bring some other folks on here in the next year. But yeah. um, good problem to have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Growing's good. That's right. Spreading the word, man. Um, but, yeah, so y'all do uh, these cool videos uh, talking about these really – interesting sites and all of these plants and you know you had mentioned earlier uh where you had removed some of those cedars in that that dirt that was probably way too high of a ph to grow anything anyway that you you know so but then you see all these cool natives come up that deer eat and turkey eat and hold a lot of insects and it kind of lit a light bulb Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah that's uh i've had a lot of experience with trying to Mm -hmm. develop things and 
the point he makes is, I mean, the stuff that's already acclimated to that and will prosper there is what you need, not try to something else. And stuff so site specific when that pH is that high, mm-hmm. what what would what would prosper there is already there. I mean, yeah, it yeah. May, maybe it didn't, but if it is, what a Post gift. Time. What's daddy say? Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Well, if you've got that gift right there, don't mess it up, you know. Yeah, yeah not not every opening in the woods wants to be no. a food plot, and I, I learned that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, I was following the advice of, of videos I was watching online, and and when as I was doing that, trying to build up soil and, and, and make that make the only opening on this 40-acre track of timber, um, you know, put as much green on the ground as possible and i was trying to even make it bigger by removing cedars and and you know unknowingly uh kind of restored a prairie on the outer edges now i sprayed glyphosate on the on the inside opening before i opened up the rest of it and so i'd killed it off but i mean y'all see the power line like we just saw that power line today i mean you can spray those spots with herbicide and and a lot of times those natives are just going to bounce right back because they there's such a good seed bank there and that's where they want to be and uh and those those places are still around probably because there's not many invasives that can really thrive there. And I know on those kind of spots, I see Lespediza and and uh, you know cedars and which aren't really that invasive. I mean they're they're native, but they're not a non-native invasive. But they can take over those kind of spots and because and we're less, because fire. we're not using fire. Yeah, yeah. They um, don't. Yeah, they do not like fire. No, no. Um, but, uh, gosh, there's so much, you know, I was trying to write down everything I wanted to talk about and it was just making me more scatterbrained, but there's, uh, so much, I mean, we could fit, we could probably do four or five episodes with y'all, but, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, so why don't we just talk about the food plot thing? Um, you know, we all love using food plots and, you know, we've talked about these sensitive areas, whether that be like a, a glade or a barren. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oftentimes those areas, the soil is so off yes. for growing yeah. those species that they're better left being managed uh, properly for the species mm-hmm. that can tolerate it. Yeah. Um, so and- I think, you know, like some of these questions we got from our listeners, you know, like, so where would I put a food plot if I if I wanted to put a food plot yeah. down. So that, uh, when I, when I'm trying to find a spot to put a food plot, I usually try to find places that have already been disturbed pretty heavily, um, whether it's not a good native seed bank or a place that has a lot of invasives because you're going to kill two birds with one stone, but you know, by, by removing some invasives and honestly putting a food plot there is going to help you on that path of making sure those invasives don't return to that area. Um, but you know, uh, a, you can have all the native habitat in the world. You can, if you took two properties that just had a ton of excellent native habitat with a bunch of native biodiversity, and you had one with a, with food plots on it and one that didn't have food plots on it, you know the the one with food plots is always going to be better. Just because I really think you know having some food plots on a place takes some pressure off of some of those native native plants, and and if you have too many deer um, just eating natives, I mean a lot of times they're going to be selecting a lot of the better stuff, and and so giving them a spot to to take pressure off some of that native stuff i think is a good thing but you know really picking a site and making sure that site um it doesn't have anything good there you don't want to take a spot and make it worse than it already is if if Mm. you couldn't make it better by planting a food plot there then don't plant a food plot there and i've seen posts on uh facebook from mississippi where they i mean y'all may know this y'all may have seen this post too is 
uh, there was some timber company land, I believe, and they had like eight different food plots, and it was that chalky uh, prairie barren type openings on this place, and uh, and there was a lot of rare, you know, grass and species in those openings, and uh, the the hunting, you know, it was I guess leased by hunters, and they took every all all of those openings and you know sprayed them on, turned them into food plots, or were trying to, and uh, you know killed off a lot of those plants, but. Uh, you know, if that's continuing to happen year after year, they're trying to turn those into food plots. Eventually, those plants that are there are going to stop. Those natives are going to stop growing and, and dropping seeds. So it's I just think it's if you're going to put in a food plot in, just make sure it's it's not a not, you know, a place that's really diverse. Because if it's your only open spot on a property like that limestone barren was the best spot on the property, that's where all the diversity was because it got a lot of sunlight. You don't want to take your best spot. And, and unknowingly, you know, try to turn it into somewhat of a monoculture. Hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, people mess up doing that. So right. choose your choose choose where you put a food plot wisely. I think that'll go a long way in, in managing a property. And it's, it's interesting to me, so many more people in our network uh, mm-hmm. is getting more into this native habitat and diversity. Um, I love deer hunting. Heck, my family eats deer meat probably three or four nights of the of, of the week yeah and yeah, uh same. when i when i do go i want to make it easier to bring a deer home and yeah. so uh i love hunting public land where there's not a lot of food plots and things it's a great challenge but uh when it's all said and done i'm gonna have a, a food plot or two on 40 or 80 acres that i can harvest deer on um mm-hmm. but just having it all in the right place is is very important um i'm gonna have yeah. some bedding cover somewhere too mm-hmm. uh but i think it can all tie in together i, I yeah. really do uh we need more of it more diversity yep so anybody else have anything they want to bring up i would say that uh you know me i'm the big picture guy overriding all of this conversation is obviously irrefutable wildlife has to get up every single day and eat 365 days a year and if you just keep that in mind that's that should be kind of your starting point is your as a broad kind of wisdom of owning a place and managing it so with that in mind uh there's that's another reason why i'm such a nut job about our clovers because they do provide that mm-hmm. as far as a food plot yeah. product but you, nothing matches properly i mean some places are just god-given with their native plants yeah and it's a gem if you find one most people don't know how to recognize it right but yeah i would guess most places that have historically been great hunting places have got that in the index just about have to but what i'm getting at is that what he said i was just kind of reiterating it again but he said you know if i had a place with great habitat naturally and then i had another great place with great habitat and also food plots i'd rather have a place with food plots but i was just as much as we're in the food plot business and we want to help people all we can it's super critical number one is that native habitat mm-hmm. yeah without oh, yeah. without question yeah and um so also when you talked about selecting a site it's a two-way street because you could pick a spot that probably doesn't look like it's doing much mm-hmm. But it may be the worst soil. It may be, I've done that. I've planted trees there because, there, you know, there was a place that had a bunch of pines on it, you know, and it was like, well, there's just a spot perfect. Didn't 
you know, they didn't do good there, Ron. I wasn't thinking. And what I put there did terrible because it was a terrible little, whatever for whatever reason, two acres of soil. And so, you know, to me, if you were going to have something and you, it was really important to have a healthy food plot, I would maybe look at where is the healthiest trees and sacrifice them, you know, an acre or two of them. Because you know that's going to do well. Yeah. You know, and it's probably well-drained enough and all that, too. So there's, you know, there's things to think through and contradictions almost on every decision. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's why we lay in bed every night mm-hmm. thinking about what we're going to do at the farm the next weekend. Well, but, I, I don't know if I've ever been on a farm, though, that <clears throat> I thought had too much wildlife food, though. I mean, I just yeah. I don't know of one. You no. know, no, you got to have biodiversity. I have been on farms that had good food plots and the habitat around it were barren. I mean, we, you know, the one that's, we, that's very common. We're, we're barren yes. and therefore the food plot didn't do exactly what it should, you know, mm-hmm. because there wasn't a supporting habitat around it. So, uh, sure. Yeah. It, native, native habitat first. I feel like when you get a property, that should be your first focus. Yeah. Um, Cause if you don't have that, I think everything else, is you know, gonna, and it yeah, may, it may in even the first place, you know? people, people yeah. avoid that. A number one morning thing. I think that's probably why you're very popular. They don't know. And there's such a, um, thirst for knowledge about that. The second thing is, okay, we have identified some stuff. I've got some consultative help, and we're going to reestablish some things that, you know, we've even checked to make sure they'll do good in those soils, and they'll be really mm-hmm. good for my place. And But they're so scared of the initial cost. Yeah. But I'll guarantee you, if you're done, done properly in restoring native habitat, and you have a strategy in mind, I want better forages for deer or you know, uh, summer uh, protein content for turkey, whatever it is, you know, uh, deer bedding. And if you go ahead and invest the money up front, the point I'm getting at is it will be a lot cheaper in the long run mm-hmm. than fighting the same thing over and over and over right. again and yeah. still not getting there. So my point to people that look at the cost of investing in that, whether it's consultative help, seed, whatever uh other land work i know the fire is the greatest yeah. tool there is and disturbance it's probably going to be the cheapest thing you could do i remember one of my favorite you know like 30 years ago land managers before it even got popular he used to say he had decided his number he had some great soil on the place he was managing for a big company and uh the first thing he did was go ahead and cut out wider right of for all the roads every one of them and I was like, you're daylighting those, right? And well, no, that's for habitat. And so the first thing he did every year was go through the whole place with a, a fertilizer buggy, a side spreader, and spread fertilizer as far as he could on each side of the road. He said, that's my number one thing first. And, of course, he was a shotgun approach. He wasn't doing soil tests mm-hmm. to see. But in reality, his priorities were right, in my opinion. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll- and I like the road approach too, because it's you already got an opening there. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can remove fewer trees and and bring in more sunlight than anywhere else. So that's what I do in my own places. I start on those old logging roads and spread out, and you get and when when you're doing it with a chainsaw, it goes a long ways because <laughs> yeah, that's less trees you got to remove to bring in you know more sunlight. That's yeah. the, the to me that's the way to go. But yeah, it's really cost effective when um, when you got a chainsaw and a drip torch, you can do a lot and and it doesn't have to be super expensive but uh to me that's the funnest part is like every property is different you can't i can't sit here and say to do this on every single property because that's not going to be the case every place is different you're going to have different battles on on every every property and and there's going to be different invasives to deal with there's going to be you know you can have too many trees that you know shading out everything it just depends on the place but 
you know, if you have a if you have a chainsaw and a drip torch, you can usually make a place better. And and to me, getting out there on the ground and and taking pictures of plants and figuring out what you got, you know, I naturalist, I, I think that's one of the best tools ever. You can just take pictures of a plant on your phone, and then you can see a map of where everybody else has seen that plant. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just to me priceless. That's a priceless tool for for a landowner. Um, and to me, that's the that's where I would start on a place is just get out there and try to learn it. Yeah, see what you got. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, understanding the the wildlife value for those plants is is just it's one thing that I don't feel like gets talked about enough in mainstream yeah. you know, the hunting industry. But understanding the what what role they played. I mean, this you know you might have a given plant that's not not fantastic for for deer browse, but maybe it draws in so many pollinators. Yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. you know more pollinators than anything <clears throat> else that you know it's bringing in those the high protein forage yeah. for and, pulps and, and i don't even think you can learn all of the value and like we have like three thousand species of native plants in in alabama and it in 10 lifetimes you couldn't right. figure out every value mm-hmm. of every plant for every species of wildlife so i mean that's a to me that's just a no-brainer if you try to promote native plant diversity you're going to promote diversity uh, in in all the species, not just the game species you're after, but the non-game species. And in, in right. turn, I mean, heck, if you've been a if you benefit a salamander, that's I mean, more salamanders. That's that's turkey food. I mean, right. I and mean, and we throw it in as turkey food or deer food. But when you yeah. say turkey food, you're also saying bird food. Yeah. yeah. When you say deer food, you're saying food for you're all other everything. kinds of mammals. That's right. yeah. um, so we are deer and turkey centric here. Uh, mm-hmm. as most of our listeners are, <laughs> but, you know, by benefiting some kind of weird insect, you know, some hippy dippy insect, yeah. mm-hmm. you're actually benefiting your turkeys. That's and right. while you're deer hunting, you're going to see more bluebirds and mm-hmm. more yeah. warblers and, and, and whatever and, else. And your kid might not be a deer turkey hunter. They might be interested in something else, right. but if they get your property, I mean, <clears throat> you've already set them up. You can, you just by managing native habitat, you're managing for everything. And so, if they're more interested in, in quail hunting, you know, and, well, you've set them up to have a good quail hunting property, right. and they're not having to do as much work and get to get to enjoy it more with their kids. Um, one thing that's cool that I've learned, uh, mostly from, from watching y'all, is uh, in my mind, you know, when I'm driving around or if I'm looking at a property, now I want to ask myself, what did this place look like 500 years ago? Oh, yeah. I do that all And the time. now yeah. I want to make, you know, try to make it look like mm-hmm. it did 500 years ago, uh, maybe with a few modern tweaks, yeah. you know, because I do like to fill my freezer with deer. But uh, So how could you get a snapshot into that? I've, not in the same words, but I've kind of thought about that before. And, like, what is the longest undisturbed spot you think you have? And I think mm-hmm. I've yeah. probably got a place that's been undisturbed for 150 years, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe more. I don't know. And if you look at that, it starts to return to what its original form was. That might tell you that. But how would you know? I don't know because, you know, all of those places, especially around here in the prairies and where right. a lot of these oh, yeah. grasslands were, is there was fire running through it all the time, at all least the time. every yeah. other year. Yeah. And sometimes in the summer, sometimes in the winter. Well, I can promise you, if I own it, there's fire running through it. Yeah, it's I like guarantee that. that. It is going. <laughs> if, that, if that returns it to its native state, then I'm I'm down the road and on that been, one. Yeah, yeah, and and some of the 
like, I mean, I'm picturing some a couple spots in Alabama where mm-hmm. you pull up, and it does look like it did 500 yeah, years ago. Yeah, you're right. Scattered, it's funny. huge post oaks. Yeah. I've said this a couple times on other podcasts, but, you know, people are so myopic about deer or ducks or turkeys, you know, and the best thing for all of them is to be – to create a place of abundance for everything, salamanders included, deer, right. you know, squirrels, Bees. birds, mm-hmm. everything. If you do that, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to end up getting more of whatever you're, you know, I guess the only limiting factor we attack sometimes is that there gets to be an out of balance with predators, you know, just like when, yes. you know, people can't even recruit a phone anymore. There's so many coats. Yeah. Or you hadn't had a hatch in years because the nest predators are, you know, yeah. so bad. I mean, but, you, you, you can help that song. That, that, you know? That's one of the downsides, though, because some of the, the best properties I've been on for wildlife, I mean, they got tons of turkey, quail, deer. Those are the places where I've seen the most predators because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's one of – you make good habitat – you're making good habitat for everything. That's and, right. And so you're going to get more predators, but you just know that's part of it. Now you might have to shoot a few, but I mean, if you don't, if you don't have predators showing up to your property, you've got some big problems. I mean, you're doing something wrong, in my opinion. But not there's 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 always going to be. Oh, they'll ba- they'll be back they'll backfill but, in there. But yeah, yeah you're right. If you have <laughs> yeah. great habitat, if you don't do anything else, you're going to have better success. Yeah. Uh, but, than than anything. Yeah. But you know the key is. Exactly what we say, habitat, habitat, and successional habitat. First first stage of successional habitat, so critical for a turkey nest. And I mean, you know, we've had people talk about the five stages and all, and mm-hmm. it's helped me understand it. But, you know, the average person, knows, I think that's, again, why probably what you're yeah. doing is so popular because there's so much thirst for knowledge, and people are starting to be enlightened that how much of a difference it really makes because – you know, I've had a long history in the hunting and outdoor industry, and everything has been so instant gratification. Pour it out and kill them. You know, plant it and kill them. Yeah. And, I, you know, to each his own. I'm not here mm-hmm. to judge. I shouldn't be. But it's, I think it's, it makes me sad that that's all they think about. Yeah. Because they could have s- such a, a more, uh, you know, you get one shot at life. You can have yeah. so much more fun in this oh, walk yeah. of hunting to be in touch with everything, yeah, you know, that's uh, to me, if you're if you're like me and you just like to be outdoors, uh, focusing on this, you're you're gonna you're gonna get so much more out of your property year round, um, because, you know, you're not just out there during hunting season. You're out there during the summertime, and you can see all the biodiversity out there. Um, but going back to your point about finding out what a place used to be, well, a trick I like to do, I like to do if a place is was is mostly timbered i mean if you walk around the property boundaries that's where a lot of the trees are that had never been cut right. and old fence can, lines yeah you can figure out you know you can see some real old post oaks and blackjacks or short leaves or whatever right up on where they got a they might have a fence growing through them but uh they kind of gives you a glimpse because i mean that post oaks there might be a willow oak next to it the same size but that post oaks probably got double the age on it and and uh, to me, that's how that's a trick I use to try to figure out what a place used to be dominated in. And that, least. that willow oak probably wasn't there 200 years ago because there was fire going through. Yeah, they yeah. seem, you know, they probably retreated to the drainages in the bottoms yeah. where they should be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of willow oak, we were talking about how that was one of our favorite small lake and reds. Yeah, oh, yeah. For, for sure, absolutely. But uh, you know, and the and the more you get involved in this movement and the more you learn about it the more you understand uh where species 
you know, the species site relationship hmm. goes. Uh, like you were saying, you know, I've seen in some of y'all's videos where you're walking through the woods and there's really big post oaks, really big chinkapin oaks, blackjack, you know, whatever. And, uh, but there's also sweet gums mixed in there. And, and it's mm-hmm. the same thing. You know, that was probably scattered grasslands with scattered upland trees on it, like post oaks. Um, and that's kind of what I want to make it yeah. look like again. Yeah. You know, it's, you get the best of both worlds really with when you, ha- I don't know, I'm, I'm biased towards Savannah. So, but, uh, I just think it's cool because you got, you got those trees and then you got grass and species underneath. And I just feel like that's like double the, 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 um, benefits for wildlife. Um, but that, you know, everybody, everybody thinks that I just like live in a good part. I mean, I do live in a good part of the country for Mm -hmm. biodiversity, but, um, ever, you can find this in your backyard. And that's Jake. That's what he thought. I mean, when he was in Morgan County, he was like, man, these, I was showing him all these places I was finding. He was like, man, we just don't have these places where I grew up in Randolph County. But then we, we went down there and they ended up having more, um, just, I mean, on your own farm, you had, you ended up finding things that you, you drove past a million times and never noticed. Um, and that's to me, just slow down and look around. That's the, yeah. Yeah. I would have sworn. Yeah. He was taking me to all these, these remnant prairies and savannas that he had found and these species, rattlesnake master, things like that, that, you know, that are known as, as prairie species, prairie obligates. Uh, I was like, man, I've been in the woods all my life. I've never seen this plant. There's no way we have this kind of stuff where I grew up. But sure enough, he, he's right. I mean, I started riding around the dirt roads, and, and you, you look for those indicator species like y'all were talking about, the post oaks, blackjack oaks, longleaf pine, mm-hmm. shortleaf pine, those those ones that are um, – that. They're well indicative yeah, of that, exactly. yeah, that particular yeah. site. Yeah, you and you, you start to learn the terrain. You know, south facing slopes, western facing slopes are more likely to be more more dry and more prone to um, you know historic uh, or intense fires that would have would have pruned those those uh, trees back and opened the, the canopy up. And you start seeing it on the roadsides. I mean, it, it just becomes really obvious. You'll find one place that's kind of you know, at a, at a fence corner or something that was never able to get disked or never able to get mowed, but it's getting enough sunlight there that those herbaceous plants can grow, and it just so happens that the privet hasn't spread that far yet. Mm-hmm. In those places, you could just about guarantee that there's going to be some some of those yeah. plants that uh, and then that and then you for. you find a you find like a rattlesnake. You might not have rattlesnake pro- master on your property, but you see some on the side of the road, and yeah. you're like, man, I want to get some seeds from that and yeah. and get it growing on my property because. Oh, yeah. Then your place becomes a, a safe place where those, you know, our native plant diversity can thrive, and and that's only going to benefit wildlife in the long run. Yeah, I get really excited about those plants and, and pollinators now, way more than I would have ever expected. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It's, it's I got always turkeys and deer and whatever. <laughs> we we got some we got some buddies. I mean, they're the hardest core deer hunters you'll you'll come across. Um, and now they send me pictures of flowers during yeah. the summertime. Uh, we do like, it all the time. Like, <laughs> yeah, just, That's uh, cool. Totally changed them. Um, yeah. It's interesting that, like, so I, I want to say a lot of a lot of the younger generation, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, it used people are more polar, uh, but this younger generation, it doesn't seem like uh, whether you're right wing or left wing or middle wing everybody seems to be in tune with the environment now 
um, and, and wanting to improve it. Yeah, you know? I think hunters are changing. You know, it's like, to Toxie's point, we were killing ourselves and we were all, you know, pouring on a bag and trophy hunting uh, and everything yeah, else. Eating our own young, is what I call it. Yeah. But this new is like, I'm a part of this bigger thing. You know, I'm not, I'm the ultimate predator. It's like, I'm a part of this bigger uh, system. Yeah, you know and I mean, mean the a functional part of it where I'm adding to it instead of taking away yeah. from the, it. That's the, where we got to get The evolution yeah. of it was started with what I talked about. It's like the guy... Uh, who wanted to have a better spot to hunt. So mm-hmm. he used that and then, you know, began planting things. And then one thing led to another. And the next thing, you know, instead of like just the results of that, it became, um, I call it, it was a sport, just like tennis or golf or hunting, right. being a gamekeeper becomes a sport. And then when that happens, you're having more, you have people more and more. It's a great conservationist move because people are not even going hunting because there's work to do on the place. Yeah. I'm guilty. If there's something I need to do, I'll opt to go work on the place rather than sit in a tree stand or something. And so what I was getting to, it may have started as kind of a selfish way to just kill another deer, has evolved. And we've seen you know the evolution of that through all that we've communicated. Now today, uh, being a gamekeeper is probably growing faster than any single thing. It's not as yeah. many people as actually go out with the guns and hunt, but it's a great thing. And the the more they do it, the more they get to the point where they get more in touch with everything going on on their place, mm-hmm. and then become fans of what you're doing and yeah. what we're doing. And I just feel like, you know, one of the things I've always dreamed about being able to do, getting one shot in life, is is really make a difference. And people always say, "Well, you already have," but not like we can still today in topics like this and when we all get more and more people as a collective making the earth a better place not just saying that it sounds great everybody i hear people say it all the time there's another thing to do it actually um and we can you know we can't expect them to do it unless we educate them unless they know i mean that guy walking you, you were walking through the woods and missing all this stuff where you didn't know any better and until someone helped you know better mm-hmm. so let's help people know better once they understand the first bit of it and then a way to continue to follow up just like the apps that'll teach mm-hmm. you and stuff once people get that it's off you're off to the races mm-hmm. yeah and they get more and more interested in just like taking pride in their whole place everything going on and to me that's when i'm proudest when we see people yeah. get there and my last thing to say is like so you're the saddest thing is someone has a place it was their family place or they bought a place and then the deer don't measure up to what I saw on TV, or they just get so disappointed with it. You know what? That breaks my heart. When mm-hmm. I see people like make the, you know, I bought this place. It's like sacred to everybody to own something anyway. And I'm going to make it the best it can be. I'm not even going to look around and compare it to my neighbors or my friends or something. Because you know what? You'll always be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Just fall in love with it and do all the work. And fall in love with the work. And it's so much better time in life doing that than chasing yeah. something that you may never get yeah. if that makes sense yeah it does. that's kind of my philosophy and i mm-hmm. hope people always get that out of what we teach or preach or sell and your story is probably as important as anybody's along those lines mm-hmm. yeah I, I think i think this generation um i think we're kind of playing catch up um with uh you know we've, we've got a lot of changes that need made um as hunters as a whole i mean we there's things change all the time it seems like there's always a new trend but i think you know this is the foundation of it i mean the foundation of habitat is 
is native plants, native ecosystems, and and so we're we're kind of playing catch up in a way, but you know I think people end up finding a lot more joy in, in doing this kind of stuff than than anything else. But you know that that should be our that should be every hunter's goal is to give back more than they take, 100%. and and then make sure at, at the very least make sure you're not making your property worse than it was when you got it. <laughs> Yeah. At the very least, I mean, if you're not going to get out there and do, yeah, do not the degrade work, the resource. At least make sure you're not making it worse. Like, I, you know, I like it when it's a selfish um, ambition that actually brings around good results. And you said the thing about making your place better than you found it. Well, I would just about guarantee everybody out there, if you are intent on and you actually do, quote unquote, you achieve making your place better than you found it. The better deer hunting is going to take care of itself for you. Yep. It's not like they're mutually exclusive or something. Right. Yeah. I was I, I I likened the 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 turkey management of today to the early days of deer, and this is not about habitat management, but I can remember vividly when you know if it was brown, it was down. Literally, you know, legal buck, you know, whatever, one inch visible above hairline, and <laughs> that's what everybody shot, and it, it didn't. They didn't know any better, and then the awakening that maybe there's a better way, but you know what, it didn't take right away. You know, and people still didn't really do the right thing. But all of a sudden, it became a status symbol. People's egos are all wrapped up in deer hunting. We all know that. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. So it became a status symbol to brag on how many deer you you passed. And you became embarrassed at the two-year-old late point. And I realized what I'm saying is it's not a good reason. It's your ego. But it drove great behavior. And the same thing happened all of a sudden. A few states, and I'll say Mississippi, has long led the way in being the, like first. the first to mm-hmm. require a certain size deer and the first to make a jake illegal except for kids and all that. So the same thing happened with turkeys. The next thing you know, people got embarrassed over shooting. You know, good mm-hmm. most people. I know there's some people that just <laughs> can't do anything right. But, uh, you know, people, their ego got in the way, but it made for a better outlook. And, you know, and yeah. the first person to – really scream about the jake rule was uh, i don't i don't have a place I have, i'm stuck on public land okay and not you know but the i i said i was just holding my breath y'all just wait because actually that guy got rewarded better than anybody because all that heavy pressure but you still had to let you know as long as people were minding the law you got the best chance to have long beers to hunt than you would have ever had and so it actually rewarded that person that is only able to hunt on public land and my rambling way is like sometimes it's our own egos but it causes the right result i want to figure out more and more how we can get people to feel that same way about their entire place and know that there's it's just like your body it's got a heartbeat and blood flowing through it in its own way and it's all the different plants and the whatever the, the the symbiosis is that the right word Dudley it's good of all of it together and the more you understand that and, and play into that and there's probably some really simple things people would start with you know mm-hmm. to go down that road regardless of I know everybody listen is not going to be able to talk to us about their place and the, the map of it and the different soil types and all this <laughs> stuff but the general things that people could do I'd love to be sure we touch on today. yeah 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 really good stuff um there's a nearby uh, wildlife management area, a good example. <clears throat> um, uh, the state acquired it, and they realized, you know, it was all cattle ground. And they could have gone in there and done, like, selective thinning of trees and do this and do that, uh, plant 
mast trees and you know that would be cool the first thing they did when they assessed it was we need to get rid of the fescue and they got rid of the fescue amen and it was like overnight that place became a mecca and now that's like you know the top uh wma that people put in for draws uh they do all kinds of cool management stuff out there now uh but 90% of it was just getting rid of one species of grass that was out there. Um, and then just yeah. all kinds of deer, turkeys, and everything else just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, with, with the biodiversity that returns, you end up having, I mean, people look at wildflowers like, oh, you know, how's a flower going to help? Oh my but God. There, it's, a, it's, it's a seed producer. I mean, it produces seeds. And that's what most of these species we're, we're hunting need is seeds or insects. And, and that's, that's the foundation of it all. I mean, without, without wildflowers or flowering plants, you don't have insects. I mean, yeah. you, don't, you, don't, you don't have as many seeds on the ground. We, we, uh, one of our buddies has a pasture that was solid um, fall panicum. And uh, the guys from Roundstone came down and we, mm-hmm. we ran combines through it and, and maybe what do you think got 30 percent of the seed a bunch of it was on the ground and i mean it was what 10 to 15 ton like or 10 to 15 thousand pounds i mean it was a ton and these seeds are just like smaller than a grain of sand i mean think about how much duck food that is on 30 acres oh yeah and and not just duck food doves and and turkey and other things i mean it's it's incredible when you look at the amount of seeds these produce and the more biodiversity you got in there they're dropping seeds at different times. They're flowering at different times, um, and that's just the whole, the whole process throughout the year. Uh, so they're supporting wildlife throughout the year. Um, it's just uh, when you start looking at things that way, you know, when you start looking at, hey, we need to be managed for insects and seeds and uh, biodiversity as a whole. I mean, I think your property is just going to improve big time. Yeah, I don't think the average person realizes how damaging to wildlife. Uh, those sawgrasses, yeah. those exotic sawgrasses oh, yeah. are. Fish they won't get rid of the <laughs> right, fish. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just strange that how we how how are, are we so blind to that? I don't, well, and one day it just clicks. Uh, and right. we were talking about this on the way back from the nursery. Like, once you've learned enough about this, it's hard to drive around and not just critique everything you drive by. <laughs> yeah. So, like on my commute in the morning. Uh, I drive past this, it's probably a 40-acre homestead on the side of the highway, and there's probably 20 oak trees planted out in this pasture. You can see like a feeder off in one corner. You can see a deer stand, and the rest of the property is mowed. And I, I understand that that's somebody's yard, but uh, and they want it to look pretty, but you know that they're, you know, they're wanting to hunt it a little bit, yeah. but... Uh, the status quo is you have to have this perfectly manicured yard, whether you live on a half acre or on 40 acres, or people are going to talk bad about you. Yeah. But that's not really the case anymore. You know, what if 20 of that was just beautiful, uh, you know, broom, sit, broom sedge and wildflowers and, you know, whatever yeah. else? Um, I just I want to try to help make that shift to yeah. where uh, the cool thing is – if yeah. For your yard to look beautiful, but uh, mm-hmm. to, to me, beautiful is natural. Looking. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's it's crazy that lawns are our largest crop 
in in North America. I mean, <laughs> what is lawns? Just the oh, yeah. yard, lawn grass, lawn wow. grass is our largest crop. If if we if we turn half of that back into native grasslands, I mean, the the impact would be crazy. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'm gonna I'm taking. I have, I still have some non-native sawgrass in my front yard. This spring, um, I'm killing it off. I just bought my parents' place, so it's been a process, but. I'm gonna I'm gonna use a grass selective herbicide and kill off my non-native lawn grasses. And there's our last year, a ton of blue-eyed grass came up and spring beauties. And I, so I didn't mow it. I let them all go to seed in preparation for this. So all those seeds dropped off of those blue-eyed grasses and and spring beauties. And I know they're in the seed bank right now. So this this spring as it starts to green up, I'm gonna go in there and kill those non-native grasses. And I'm hoping it takes over and and yeah, that, grass and that stuff. blue-eyed grass, uh, we've got it everywhere around here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I want to say it's like a, a miniature iris or something. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yep. Uh, it's, it's cool. Uh, and, yeah. But like, uh, like that Doug Tallamy guy says, he's real interesting. Uh, do what you can. Yeah. You know, if, if your significant other wants you to have a, a small uh, an area of sod grass, you might have yeah. to compromise a little bit. But... Well, Put some natives out there too, you know. Do do what you can. Yeah, that's um, gonna that's it, gonna be my version of a mowed area. I right. Mean, I set I've exactly. set most of my yard aside to just grow up in taller native grasses. But if you get, we gotta have some short places, and and so that's my experiment to try to make that happen. That's yeah. cool. Just just most of my yards, I just mowed. We did saw at the very front inside the circle yeah. of the driveway, but. I just mowed what was there year over year over year, and it looks pretty good actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, without having to saw anything. Yeah. And the, and it's it's cool what's in the seed bank too. That's just the isn't it crazy yeah, how that's the cool part. You know, uh, we're listening to the the five stages of mm-hmm. habitat of successional habitat. Anyway, in the last stage might be like two three hundred years to get there maybe. Yeah, but there's stuff there that when it's cut comes back to life. Is that that's crazy? But is that true? Yeah. Uh, How stuff stays yeah, in the seed bank. Yeah, yeah, for that long, 200, yeah, but, 300 years. But here's the oh, thing, yeah. too, is I think that was a mosaic across the landscape. Is there everything was at different stages, too. So, right. you know, those could have shared seeds. Some of those at different stages could have shared seed. But I think for the most part, I mean, there's species I know that will last 50 years in the, in the soil. Um, but that's that's the thing is, is, you know, it takes a lifetime to get to that last stage. Oh, but gosh, at least. You can – yeah, you. But it, it, not everything takes a lifetime. You can you can have a native grassland in two or three years. And to me, that's the that's the coolest thing is you can almost get it to its you know high stage in succession, and in three years, and you could be walking through that and enjoying it with your family. Um, and so I don't know that to me that's just part of the cool part. You can you could you could recreate a grassland ten fifteen times in your lifetime and. Hmm. And it seems to me this prairie we live in, we just talked about is, and I don't have a whole lot to compare because I've lived in this yeah. and my other yeah. places are in, so we're in the prairie. But it's like, I mean, you don't want to go every, you don't want to burn some every single year. I realize that and mm. just about. But the what well, Bob's getting at in this prairie, this seems like the more we burn, if you just, we burn and then we don't do anything. We don't bush hog, we don't. No herbicides, nothing. Just leave it like it is. And then when you come back and burn and you get over, say, I'm looking at maybe 15 to 20 years of burning, it's amazing how it's transformed. It's almost like I feel like I'm transforming it back to what it used to be more. 
and the things that become propagated by the fire, uh, I feel like it certainly seems more productive to wildlife. But I will the one benefit because I've become I already kind of was anyway, but I have to admit a wildflower nut job. And so <laughs> it's like in once the late spring gets around in early summer, it's like going to a tourist attraction for wildflowers. Now it's yeah. just incredible. I get such a rush seeing that now, mm-hmm. and it didn't used to be that way until we started doing that, leaving alone and burning, you know, especially when we burn different things in different years. Yeah, I think that's the hunter in you. You get to get out there and you're you're hunting for something. Yeah. And when you when you find it or when you see something new, that's <clears throat> that's what you get to go home with is some new knowledge of, of a plant you've discovered. It's amazing what that fire will do for you though. Yeah, that that is that's and those I think the more you do it, the you get those perennial those longer lived perennial species starting to take over towards the end of it. But yeah, it's you know, if some places you want to burn every year in the beginning just to get, you know, maybe yeah, get, to get the rid of the fescue. Gone. Yeah, the fes- like fescue, you don't get yeah. you don't get rid of it yeah. in one turn. You yeah, know? But once once that's gone, I mean, you can slow it down some. But um, this is really good discussion. I, I feel like we're kind of all over the place, which is actually pretty cool. typical. It's perfect, us. perfect yeah. for me yeah. and Dudley. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. But we did share uh, that you know folks can send in a question or two. And uh, we probably need to cover a few of those, don't y'all think? Yeah. Um, so let's see. If anybody sees one that they think stands out. Uh, so here's one that says, why is Kyle's younger sister more talented yeah. than he is? So, <laughs> well, you know, that's, a, that's you know, maybe some people's opinions. But um, she's, a, she's she built the largest neighborhood ever. She's over the largest neighborhood development ever in Huntsville. So. We took we took different paths, but here's the thing: I've slowly been chipping away at her, <laughs> and she she I think she's wanting to change career paths, and, and she she might help me start a native nursery. But yeah, this, she's giving me a hard time. I think so. that's hilarious. Yeah. So uh, one of the more serious ones. Let's see. Okay, uh, Cambo twelve says I'm overrun with American holly on my property. It's native, but it's everywhere. Hack and squirt. I think I know the answer to that. Yeah, probably. That's. It. I mean, too much of, too much of anything. Even if it's a native, I'd first I'd I'd wonder if it's a, a native. I mean, I'm sure they identified it right, but just double check it and make sure. Because if it's if it's a, a non-native one, I mean, that you might want to get rid of all of it, especially if it has those invasive tendencies. But I don't know. Around here, I don't. Leather do you see? Leather leaf Mahone, yeah, it could Mahone, be like leather leaf Mahonia or something because. I don't really see many places where I see holly yeah. really taken over. I that, imagine fire would handle that well, pretty well. Th- yeah. 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 I think Jake hit the nail on the head. Yeah, like, sure. uh, I see a lot of American yeah. holly, like, on areas of public land that they never burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, private yeah. land that never burns. Like, we're going to let these trees just grow and never cut them. It's in our family. That's where yeah. you see a ton of, of hollies because it's got really thin mm-hmm. bark. And it's not tolerant yeah. of fire. Um, and so that may be all it is. Um, and then you get south of here where all that Yalpin holly, but they, they specifically said American holly, but Yalpin holly is almost like privet. I mean, right. it just grows yeah. super thick in the understory. But again, it's, it's not tolerant of fire, and that's why yeah. it's everywhere. So I would say fire, uh, but if you want to get, if you can't burn, then yeah, do some hack and squirt. Yeah. Uh, just yep. set some of it back. 
They'll probably have a bunch of deciduous holly around here, don't you? The, mm-hmm. the we we do. I saw. I wanted to pull over and collect some. I saw a real pretty one uh, Sunday. Yeah, they, I saw some berries at that prairie we stopped there earlier. That's one of Miss Evelyn's favorites. It is. Um, Mine too. I grew and, up with a lot of that in the woods in South Alabama. Where and they're dioecious, so you'll see some with those mm-hmm. red fruits and some of them that aren't. Um, okay. Jimmy Gillespie says, what led to the disappearance of savannas in the southeast? Oh, man. I was rooting to get that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, lack of fire is the biggest one. Um, because And, well, to begin with, let's go way back. Uh, large herbivores. Mm-hmm. Oh, loss, here we go. The loss <clears throat> of large herbivores was one of the first things. I mean, we had savannas in the southeast just like, you know, they have in Africa, and those large herbivores help keep those places open. But, you know, after we lost a lot of our bigger herbivores, we, you know, Native Americans took over, and and they were using fire. You know, fire happened before them naturally, but they were using fire even more. And, uh, you know, that was keeping – that was managing for a lot of uh, fire-tolerant species and keeping places open. When you have a lot of those native grasses there – those native grasses burn hot, and they'll they'll they kill a lot of trees, and that's kind of I think grasslands' ability to, you know, that's their relationship with fire, and they're in order to you know keep fire intolerant trees at bay. They burn so hot. I mean, they burn hot enough to kill even fire tolerant trees at certain ages. Um, so lack of fire was the biggest thing. We took it away. We allowed a lot of savannas to turn into closed canopy forest and when that happened a lot of the native grasses and stuff underneath disappeared um but i feel like there's something else i was supposed to add to that well i mean yeah i mean you're all over it i feel like you know that those the presence of fire or the absence of fire both of those have their own respective positive feedback loops you know you uh, the the messification of the the american forest you know where it all the species that they can do well, the shade tolerant species that do well, um, they can survive in the shade that are not fire tolerant. Um, those the leaves, the leaf litter that they those produce don't don't burn very hot, they don't burn well. And, you know, uh, conversely, those species, like Kyle talks about the grasses, those things, you know, they burn really hot, really aggressively. Really fast if you're yeah, not careful. Exactly. Yeah. And even the the tree, you know, you made that that YouTube video a while back about the oak leaves and man you you have some some blackjack oaks and post oak leaves those suckers will burn burn hot and mm-hmm. all the all the you know sweet gum or whatever those things are crumbled up yeah. a, a few weeks after they fall so it's uh yeah and then even a lot of the bottomland oak species uh, are more difficult to burn like yeah. water oak willow oak yeah get that um, get that relative humidity in about 25 oh it'll go it it makes a huge (laughs) difference yeah to burn and so i mean if if you don't know in the southeast i mean i think we had savannas or wide open prairie in places that weren't i mean bottomlands would have been a lot of forested you had closed canopy forest in bottomland areas that's why you have shade uh, tolerant species like pawpaws and stuff in those bottomland areas and on north slopes and east slopes of of hills i mean You'd, you'd have um, more forest because those areas hold moisture. And uh, and those are the places where you see, see spring ephemeral wildflowers. Uh, and those, those wildflowers are adapted to come up in early spring before leaves come back out on those trees. And so 
once the leaves drop, there's all of a sudden in the wintertime a lot of sunlight on the ground. And until green up, that's when those spring ephemerals are adapted to come in and flower and do their thing in, like, in uh, a forest. One of our favorite turkey season yeah. plants yep. is the may pop, may apple. Yeah, yeah, yep. may that's apple. A spring ephemeral. And, and uh, so then everywhere else, though, all those drier south slopes, uh, west slopes, um, you know, flat areas, flat dry areas, were either wide open prairie or savannas. And, uh, and I, that was how it was across most of the southeast. And, and I think, you know, people don't realize that. That's something, a very common misconception that everywhere used to be closed canopy forest. Yeah, the myth of the squirrel is what uh, yeah, the Wayne, Wayne, Dwayne Dwayne Estes, Estes yeah. talks about. Hmm. Um, you know, it, I, I feel like that was like a cultural thing because I, I experienced that. I heard at some point, have you all ever heard the statement that, you know, back in the day a squirrel could start on the, the Atlantic coast and hop from tree to tree on, you know, all the way to the Mississippi River and never touch the ground. I feel yeah. like that's that's something I a lot of people heard growing up. I've heard them say that about American chestnut, too, that they could just jump from American chestnut to American chestnut. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. that's another version. But if you read a bunch of old accounts, um, like I've got a buddy that's an archaeologist, and, uh, you know, you can go to the microfilm at the library and read newspapers from, I don't yeah. know, the 1800s or whatever, and... You know, some of this was a three-county area of nothing but grasslands. Mm, yeah. with, you know, just the, the drainages were wooded. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Do y'all have a resource here? I'm, I'm sure it's available. I know Alabama and Georgia have this, but there's there's a public resource where you can find aerial imagery that they did right around the beginning, kind of like the early 40s. And, oh, wow. man, it's, uh, it's really, really interesting to look at that stuff because you can see – in areas now that are completely closed canopy, I can go and look at those, especially the ones where I, I still find those relic uh, blackjack oak mm-hmm. and post oaks, and I could see individual trees, and I could see that that tannish, you know, that grassland look in between them. Wow! And so it's a, uh, you know, you're not going to see that everywhere. Some the old where, soil books, you know, yeah, were yeah, taken in the sixties. Yeah, that was about as far back as I've been able to go uh, discern, and I, you could see big open areas mm-hmm. and there was a, a footprint but i don't know how long before but there's one in particular is about a 1500 acre block that's like i know that had to be timbered it's yeah. in a complex of two big creeks mm-hmm. and but it was farmland but when you looked at that there's these big black bands all the way across yeah where they burned off the wind the wind rows or whatever after they yeah. cut everything and pushed it up and then they you can see all the way this this is a 1500 acre open area but they, cool. you could see that footprint of yeah. like having it was timbered and they turned it into farmland. It's amazing how long that charcoal could stay in the ground. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, my uh, my farm, uh, we long time ago went to the went to the courthouse and and got a a topo map, mm-hmm. and like you said, it was probably done in the forties, and it was pretty much no trees, mm-hmm. you know, just just the drainages in the bottoms. Yeah. Everything else was, you know, what. What old folks refer to as that sage grass. Yeah. yeah. And I've got a I've got a neighbor that says he remembers in February, they would call it the burning of the grasses, and they would get on horses with matches and just light matches and yeah. throw them out. We've wow. got a cultural amnesia, don't we? I mean, <laughs> There's yeah. no doubt about yeah. that. Um, all right, let's find another good question here. Anybody? I've got one. Okay. So these guys, I've asked this before. No one's really ever put it out there, but – I've always said if another. This would be like getting people to do stuff that was really good for your your habitat, for your place, for your natives. 
but it might be a selfish reason. So what in your mind could you name a couple of native plants that actually produce their seed in the spring, like April 1st or so? That So my point is that would be great for turkey populations. And not only having them on your place to hunt, but raising them and stuff too. So what are some of your favorites? Because there are some I've noticed, I don't even know what to call them, um, you know, there's the one that grows in the some of the field. panicums and stuff. Like, yeah, I but I saw just... last year. I saw a, a look like a um, a pea, and I was the it was the youth weekend. I was out there with Rodney in some traditionally super big forested, you know, mature timber. And I looked down in a couple of spots. There was this beautiful little white flower growing on a plant, and I'd recognize it had to be some type of pea. That was yeah. we we looked that up, and it was one of the. I'm pretty sure it was one of the native vetches. Yeah, and so my okay. point is, but if that, that was flowering at the first of March, mm-hmm. it was putting the seed out in turkey season. Yeah, Carolina yeah. But vetch is one. That may have been that may have been what it was. I think that is. So I mean, is that true? And is that a valuable seed? Now, if so, then how do we get right. down the road with that? Yeah, add that to the list, guys. Yeah. 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 Um, sedges. I mean, that's another good one. I think that's. Yeah. I mean, those yeah. are. You might not realize it, but they flower. They are actually flowering, and. Uh, and put all, putting off seed really early. Um, one, well, a lot of the seed lasts so well. I notice all the sedges that do go dormant for the winter. It seems like that's some of the – as far as very few of them maintain their seed and, you know, the integrity of whatever, all that, through the winter and all, but that, those do. They yeah. look like it to me they do. Yeah, and I think turkeys will even eat like their seed that's not even mature yet. Wow. Um, yeah. But um, Yeah, we looked in that crop, that bird you killed in – uh, National Forest in Talladega last year, and it was a lot of sedge seed. In yeah, there. and there wasn't. It was it was all forested around there yeah. pretty much. Yeah. So he yeah. he was he was getting it somewhere. Where there's really spaced out. Some of those sedges can grow like spring ephemerals in really yeah. shaded um, forests. Closed canopy forests. Um, but you know, if you're if you're in a grassland, if you burn, and then the spring, the first thing that's going to green up is usually the the ones that, uh, especially in the fall. If you burn in the fall, you're going to get those earlier blooming um uh wildflower species right. uh, coming in first and so if you burn in the usually if you burn like later on in the spring you're going to have you're managed for native warm season grasses right. later on in yeah. the year but uh, i burn you know anywhere from november october november um and we we're doing burns last week on some of our places but i just kind of mix it up for that reason right. so things are are maturing at different times and that's favoring different wildflower and grass species that are that are going to see it at different times yeah that was actually a question from a listener uh you know yeah talk about what what time of year to burn to get what types of plants that come back yeah dudley you're talking about this being the the we were walking around that prairie this being the time of year for the 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 basil rosettes on those i mean uh at the nursery uh there were a lot of green rosette leaves still out i mean some of them we had that really hard freeze but you know there were still some some mm-hmm. warm season species that had those green uh, basil leaves that were that just kind of sit there and, and wait for their opportunity and yeah like those being set back by a spring fire probably yeah so to our yeah. listeners that don't know a basil rosette is just the the wintering portion of certain plants that just hangs out really close to the ground and gathers energy and then once its growing season hits it'll send up a flower or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
and you know, and they were green, you know, yeah. we were down to close to zero Fahrenheit a couple of weeks ago. Well, those basil rosettes were in good shape, yeah. feeding deer and rabbits and whatever mm-hmm. else. Look like a spring mix from Publix, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Super salad bar. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Um, you had mentioned uh, Dwayne from the Dwayne Southern. Yeah, Southeastern Grassland. Yeah, what are some, yes. That's a great group, spreading good information. Oh, yeah. Are there uh, – somebody else asked about books, uh, Man, BK, about books for learning about native plants. Uh, but I'd like to expand that. You know, what are some other organizations or websites or social media, you know, anything you can think of? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Southeastern Grassland Initiative, or Institute's a great one. Um, I You know, there's a lot of Facebook groups about native plants i started one a couple years ago native Native habitat managers yeah native habitat managers and and it's a great one it's uh you know and it's not it's it's a bunch of hunters that started it but it's not just for hunters i mean because we we wanted the botanists and foresters and native plant and you know um, folks in there as well just because we wanted their knowledge um so it's a mix of people um and you can ask any kind of question you know landscaping all the way to managing for certain species and and uh as long as it's native habitat related but i think i naturalist is one of the best you know i mentioned it earlier but you can if you know your physiographic region you know we live in the molten valley um you got he jake's from the piedmont originally and y'all are in the black belt you can oh uh, yeah my type, farm's in know, the lust bluffs yeah, yeah you can type in if if there's not a project on i naturalist you can start one and other people can add plants to it, but you know, there's probably I know there's already one probably for the Black Belt. There, Molten Valley, there's Molten Valley savannas, Molten Valley uh, limestone barrens, and so people who have properties and have those sort of ecosystems, or even if they're just driving around roadsides, will add plants to those uh, those uh, projects. And then you have a complete list of pretty much of plants that you can find in your area um wildflowers grasses all sorts of stuff and i think that's an invaluable tool um and not only just for plant identification but for also better understanding your your physiographic region where you live um but yeah sgi um and there's there's all sorts of books i mean uh, there's native plants of the southeast uh there's one called garden revolution and it's just more so about like turning your lawn into native stuff but it's really has a lot of good information about um, doing native plantings, how to time fires and how to time the native plantings um, and how to battle certain invasives and stuff. That's a good one, but there's all sorts of information out there. Yeah, Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Research Center. That's a good one. You looked at the sign naturalist thing. This thing's great. It's I'm, cool. I'm yeah, downloading it now. Yeah, you can just hit explore <laughs> and just look at a map and see what yeah. everybody's seeing. Yeah. God, this is and funny. the more people, Don't look at this is going to take up a bunch. The of more time. people that use it, the better it gets. Yeah, yeah. yeah look at this. <laughs> and they use it for science. I mean, it's all used for research. Uh, but I found plants that, and I was the first person to put them on iNaturalist for the whole state of Alabama. So when that happens, you know you've come across something that's pretty uncommon. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, you, it, if you do post at your home, people can see where you live. So just keep that in like mind. Like me and Dudley on these. I'm out. On the, <laughs> we felt like we were uh, Columbus discovered America every time we find a hybrid oak that wouldn't been reported yet somewhere. Yeah. It's like yeah. we would look up and look up, and you, there's no name for it. That means nobody's discovered it yet. Yeah. 
and we we did. We have, yeah, it was fun. I mean, you feel special. <laughs> we need to get that thing named or them named. Yeah, don't don't. <laughs> what, what are they? Or can you uh, talk about we'll, actually, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk offline. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot. A lot at stake there. Yeah, I got uh, a hope to show you. Too. We did have oh. fun looking <laughs> at the hybrids at the nursery that were sprouting out of the nut alls and the swamp chestnuts and that kind of thing. He and gets to look at all of that and pick them out. Yeah, they have one that's really cool that you're going to want to see. Yeah. Um, it might have some Durand in it. So we'll see. Anyway, uh, what other questions here? I just want to say y'all's, y'all's nursery was the first place I ever bought native plants. Um, this six or seven years ago, I bought Thank you. bought trees well, uh, from y'all's from from y'all uh, persimmons, and I think I bought some plums and nut all oak, live oaks, bur oaks. I bought several things, but y'all are, y'all are the first native nursery I ever bought from, and then. Well, it all started in his backyard. I'm going to that. Yeah. A thousand Ho- trees going. Hobbies going wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I've always called. I'm, I'm good at that too. Maybe you bought. Have you ever bought a beetle? You hadn't lived if you hadn't bought one of our beetles oaks. You need to get one of those. Uh, yeah, that is a favorite. That was um, kind of that was kind of the like light bulb went off. This 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 is here. They're they're here somewhere. Yeah. What what is it? It's a cross between a white oak and a swamp chestnut oak. Oh, Alba okay, yeah. Man. Man. Just, just oh, that's got to be. That's a cool, yeah. that's a cool Can't tree. Can't beat it. Jeez. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, so I have a listener that was asking about uh, burning hardwoods and how to make it safe. Uh, and uh, how do we hit on that a little bit? I just, um, yeah. I just burn them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. And believe it or not, there's some, some – professionals out there they'll tell you you shouldn't burn in hardwoods and in, in their line if you can look at the leaves of hard of uh, upland hardwood species and you, you can't tell me they don't want fire but um you know i just if if it's if you're worried about scarring trees or something which i think on most of them you, you don't have to worry because i've burned i've sent some hot fires through some uh upland hardwoods and and uh, haven't haven't damaged them at all, especially if it's just leaf litter. Yeah, I mean, uh, unless you have a, just a crazy amount of fuel, yeah. I wouldn't. No, well, if it's a bunch of native grasses, that might be where you could. But you it's going to have to be it. It'd be a really dry day, and probably conditions you shouldn't be burning in, anyways. But I mean, yeah, it's a two-edged sword. If you think you're going to have a commercial timber value that you want to protect someday, okay, maybe. But if not. Just burn it because I, I believe the fire will transform yeah. it into what's best mm-hmm. and highest use yeah. for nature. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got a particular place here that we burn. It's really wet, but it's got a beautiful, uh, been thin twice stand of pines. Well, that's getting to a point where, you know, the time's, time clock's ticking to final harvest, but I'm, I don't like to do that. I like to keep them as long as I can because it's, some really cool stuff happens with that much sunlight mm-hmm. hitting the ground. But we burn it, and uh, Max been out there. You know what I'm talking about. Where he got it, cut his teeth burning, and I mean hot, just burning. And every year, boom, the, and they're all. I'm pretty sure they're all cherry barks. They just come right back, and I mean they were burnt to a crisp. <clears throat> and it does not bother them one bit. In fact, they get thicker and thicker all the time. Yeah, almost like it's killing other stuff, and they're taking off just like pines. But they they are obviously very tolerant to fire, especially for a bottomland species. I see. I have my, in my pasture, and it seems like. They just love the same areas you see water oaks and willow oaks and mm-hmm. stuff. But they, they got they got those leaves that love to burn. I, and you, I, you I find can't. them further up the hill, too. Yeah, so that yeah. may be yeah, an indication that they can handle 
burning a little bit. I better. can assure you these can handle burning. I and mean, they've got crazy. a bigger they've got a bigger leaf lobe to leaf as well. So yeah. who knows? Dormant seasons also, you know, that's that's a it which it's hard hard yes. to get stuff to burn in under hardwoods and you yeah. know, in the growing season because it's so shady, but. Yeah, I mean, if you're worried about damaging, then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Do it on a cold day when it's like under yeah. 50, and then you really don't have to worry about yeah. anything. But I don't worry about it anyways. You, most forests, you don't. You could probably uh, kill a few yeah. trees. It'd probably help that, you out. That right. just saves us some herbicide or chainsaw work. Yeah, the, yeah. The fire can take a couple. Well, of my buddy's a great uh, timber harvester and, and forester. I mean, grower of timber too, and he. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, it, it came up in beetles, and there'd be, there's a dead one and a dead one, and people would be freaking out. He said, I don't know what you're sweating. He said, those that die, first of all, are going to create better diversity on your place, okay? Second of all, over a very short period of time, you're going to make up that volume instantly with the trees right by it anyway. So quit sweating, yeah. you know, that yeah. you lost a you know half acre even yeah. wouldn't hurt a thing, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So we had a podcast very recently where we were talking about uh, Native Americans and yeah. artifacts and how to properly do things. And uh, anyway, now we have a, a question from a listener that says, do you try to include indigenous people in your work? Yeah, I would love, I think it'd be so cool to, to, to burn with some indigenous folks. That'd be like a dream of mine. I think it'd be, because they, they, they're the ones who really, their their ancestors have been burning here for years but they've reached out to me several different tribes um recently one from oklahoma but there was one locally that was that reached out they had a they were like um our we know that um in the past our i guess their their ancestors created uh, necklaces using this certain type of seed and it was really glossy and they they showed me they, they had sent some pictures or something and i was i'm pretty sure it was like a wild white like wild white indigo mm. it looked that's what it looked like. or like any of those indigos that make the um those you know seed pods and they have like the little legume i mean they look like tiny little kidney beans in there but they're real glossy mm. and really hard if you've ever um if you've ever seen them they're just real hard i mean when you got them in a box together they jink like they jingle like i mean it's it's weird how uh but they're like really tough i think that's what they were um but they're they just couldn't figure out what the seed it came from and so I, I, I think that's what it was. I'm, I hope I was right, but mm -hmm. that's the that's the closest I've come to working with. Hmm. Yeah, uh, we have some Chickasaws come to our office from time to time. Yeah. Great, great group of folks. Uh, and they're they're doing some stuff north of us here. Mine was going to be all around fescue, you know, in relation to, yeah, but I think we kind of covered a lot of that. I mean, it's just burn, burn, burn. Yeah, that's every question y'all ask me in here is going to be the answer. Burn, burn, burn. All right, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah, burn, burn, when in doubt, burn. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, we're dealing with invasives. Uh, can you defend the use of herbicides to, to get rid of invasive? Is there invasives? Is there a, a best way to put that to to help put that in perspective. Can I give yeah. him one two word name to put that in perspective too? Sure. Kogan grass, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. God, that stuff is rough. I've seen but it. I've I've heard you mention it on on your podcast yeah. so, and on yeah. your videos. So you just got a half acre patch that just blew up and it's gonna engulf your place. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. You can't you know, tell me it's you're not different. Gonna, if yeah. you just leave it be. The, the damage you're doing to that ecosystem by not using herbicide, I mean, I don't care if you have to treat it a hundred times, you're, it's, 
it's better than just letting it take over. You would be, I believe but now, having dealt it. with it for so long, you'd be better to neutralize the soil there if it took yeah. that. Yeah. For, you know, the stuff that takes a couple of years mm-hmm. out of the life of that. Yeah. Than to let it keep growing. You yeah. just and I honestly, we're to an emergency standpoint yeah, on me. Yeah. I I need some advice. Yeah, that's one uh, reason I brought that up. Yeah. Well, that so um, we were we were out on a friend the the where we seen the uh, Mosasaurus mm-hmm. skeleton. He he's been battling it for years, and I saw some sites. He Jake and I both did. I mean, where he had treated it with glyphosate. It was just was it just glyphosate or was it mixed? I think with he did a cocktail glyphosate and a That's what I thought. And, yep, uh, I don't, that's what we did. That's what we did. Ammonium sulfate yep. and multiple times. Yep, and in the same year, um, and this was like two or three years after he started treating. That site had liatris and gray headed cornflower. And he, native he, grasses. he got rid of it. Yeah, no well, cocon grass. You think the the, the the key is that he continued throughout the year? Yeah, multiple times in a year. Yeah. So would you think it would be good to, if you had it and you burn it, that doesn't spread it necessarily, does it? No. Uh, it but does you need like to it. mark the spot so you know exactly what, because when it yeah. first greens back up, it's going to be most vulnerable, That's I would think. Spray. Yeah, yeah. And, but you might want to flag it so you know exactly where to spray. Yeah, and the longer it has that surface area to photosynthesize, the the more it can, you know. First time, yeah. first time I've ever done it, I just clear cut up like 105 acres, but it had to have it in some giant pines. Yeah, yeah. and uh, we were almost like we almost lost some to a, hurt, a tornado too. And I'm gonna do some cool things with the way they said, "Where are you gonna replant it?" And I said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually turn part of it into like a, a little meta." And I'm going to let part of it just grow back up and whatever the hell it wants to grow back up in. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to reforest some hardwoods and I'm going to put some pines back. But I'm going to diversify that. But my point in saying all along, I was defending my clear cut. Uh, <laughs> it's got two spots that have been rapidly expanding of Kogon grass. And now's the time where it's going to just take off like a wildfire yeah. to do something. So I'm, this, this coming year, I've got to control that right there. Yeah. Is it just one spot? No, there's a couple. Yeah. One, one big one, but there's a couple. And I hate to say, you know, people, that's how I get spread around. That guy's equipment's taking it somewhere mm-hmm. else. But. Yeah, we've got it up in North Alabama now. And uh, we just had Jake sprayed our first patch of it this year that we've ever had to spray. Um, and it, it's all on the highways because the same highway yeah. mowing crews going from Montgomery all the way to North Alabama to the Tennessee line. And they're spreading it all along the way. I mean, um, but uh, that's a, that is a horrible one. But for – you know, I, I post a lot of videos uh, about when I where I say, "Hey, I treated it with herbicide," and people people go off because I cast a pretty broad right. net, mm-hmm. and I've got a ton of different it ain't followers. Just like good old boy hunters. No, no, yeah. and so I have to explain myself. Um, you know, it's this. It's either treat it with herbicide right now, or we're going to leave it for the next generation for them to have to treat. Ten times the amount, or hundred times, or I mean, lose the place. You yeah, talk about it. it. It's lose crazy, it and and the damage that's going to do to that ecosystem is far more yes. than than any herbicide could ever do. Um, and it's and it's and it's the same thing we've done to fire. We've we've made herbicide a bad word, just like we did fire. But they're both tools. I mean, lawn mowers, chainsaws. Uh, well, it's just leaf the overuse. They're all tools. All of it's just the overuse of them is yeah. the issue. You, like herbicides, this big, broad use of it. Well, you, you're talking about specific spots, exactly where it's growing, mm-hmm. that you're going to target. That's a whole yeah. different thing. It's, it's like 
my I, it's my worst enemy. I've seen whole entire populations of plants disappear because a road crew sprayed, sprayed the roadside, but that's because they didn't know what they're spraying. Mm-hmm. If you know what you're spraying and you're out there killing invasives, that's a good thing. And as far as putting it. specifics, yeah. uh, I don't I don't really want to make too many yeah. herbicide recommendations. I know one yeah, treatment's okay. never worked. Read okay. and follow the label yeah. is okay. what. Okay. What I like to say on that. Well, I'm I'm waiting to you know everybody wants a magic cure. I'm waiting to see maybe they finally found something it doesn't like. Hey, um, there's there's been I, I was talking to somebody the other day. They're like, there's some discussion on like the does like bamboo trespass if you have it on your property and you allow it to spread to your neighbors. I mean, it's probably too late to figure that out with going grass, but that should there should have been something in in the beginning to say, hey, right. who planted this stuff? And because they should they should pay for it i mean it's uh, there was the y'all know better than me but there was like the southeastern kogan grass task force mm-hmm. thing and 15 years ago yeah. 12 i hear about yeah, it i hear yeah. about it one of my dear friend's son uh is a very very successful forester and i asked him about it. he was a part of that he said no they gave up they threw the red they threw <laughs> the towel in and just gave they disbanded they they have given up yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, I've seen roadsides down in South Alabama, Mississippi, going down towards the coast or somewhere, and just it's everywhere for miles. It's, it's taken like completely taken over. The only thing I found it does not like shade. That's the only thing. That's the, yeah. about the only saving grace. It'll certainly slow it down. An annual tillage, you know, like farmers yeah. where yeah. where you farm, but that's yeah. it. And if there's if you till it though, you're going to spread it, right? Yeah. And it, there's you know there's other. I won't. They do, you know, you'll see a dead circle. It's always in a circular pattern when we're driving down to the beach and stuff. You see it. Uh, Some states are better than others, it it seems. But, I mean, yeah, they're... It's everywhere. You can go up to Iowa, and there's the same story about another species up there, Mm. you know. Uh, It's not just Kogan grass. It's 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 the worst one I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. As far as hard to kill. It's scary to think what the coastal plain could look like in a hundred years if, yeah. if we can't get a hold of it yeah for sure yeah. Oh, well i thought it distracted us about it but i knew that was a invasive yeah. of yeah. note well, and i've he's on the top 10 list for sure the the it's, it's top, top 10 globally yeah yeah if y'all allow me I'm, i won't say much about this but the 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 anger you just had towards kogan grass <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the anger i have towards uh, invasives or plants with invasive tendencies still being planted and that's why i'm so passionate about it because mm-hmm. we should have learned our, our lesson from all these things that we've planted in the past like it's i mean i mean how come we haven't i mean it's, yeah and that's, it's a, that's a that's yeah. a debate topic of debate so how do you determine that something maybe that's not native to here could be greatly beneficial versus something that would become invasive it just seems like yeah. so many invasive things that like came out of the far east type yeah, almost yeah. you know hmm. and not i mean it's not all non-natives aren't invasive but there's definitely right. invasive non-natives and they can have different invasive tendencies um but it's i don't know they they just don't uh, for the most part most non-natives i mean our our insects can't use them and and our wildlife aren't adapted to using them but um you know so native species, I think, feel like are always the better option and safest option. Safest um, option, for if, sure. Well, the best way to make sure is just propagate what's already on your place. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. And and I've had people message me. They're like, soybeans are non-native. And I'm like, yeah, but, dang, I mean, you plant yeah. them, and they're they're not going to be here forever. Yeah, they're not going to naturally yeah. expand. That's yeah. the they difference. They plant themselves the next year. You, you know, That's farmers right. would save a lot of well, money. Well, then you would have something with maybe the highest nutrient content possible for deer. Yeah. 
It, yeah. it would never take over because no. they're going to control no. it for you, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think Dudley was one telling me about there were some there were some native plants in this country that were like soybeans, almost like a wild soybean, but the yeah. expanded deer herds wiped them out pretty much yeah. now. Right? Well, that's because we have so many native legumes. But. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to spread if you don't plant it, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah. stick with stick with something that's proven and native. Um, but uh, yeah, we just lost Lanny. He's got an important phone call at at three. He does. Very important. Um, I might have to be with him. But uh, I don't. You know, I could talk about this kind of stuff for the next three weeks. <laughs> but uh, and we'd love to get y'all back. Uh, oh, for sure. Well, I, um, yeah, I've, I've created a whole platform on just talking about it. So <laughs> right, <laughs> I could talk about it for years. Hopefully, are you ready to? Do, do you want to do the rapid fire? Okay. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, we try to do a rapid fire for all of our guests, and uh, we just ask you questions quickly in succession. It's just kind of a fun way of getting to know y'all better and letting our listeners get to know y'all better. So um, uh, if y'all want to do every other one, you can, or just one of y'all. You let me know. I, I let them blurt it out at the same time. I yeah. want to see them say a different answer. <laughs> okay, well, this will be, be funny. Fu- this will be fun. Okay, Might even get so, an argument out of them. Uh, and if you want to say neither or both, you can do that on a few of them as well. Okay? All right, are you ready? Loblolly pine or mixed forest? Mixed forest. Yeah. Leonard Skinner <laughs> or George Jones? Skinner, oh, yeah, I don't know. Skinner's close. I don't know. I listen to him more. So, all right, uh, grits or oatmeal? Oh, grits man. for sure. Oh, we got uh, a, we got a disagreement. Uh, deer meat or turkey meat? Turkey. Is there diversity? So sweet, yeah. unsweet, or water? Oh, sweet. It's sweet. Yeah. I mean, uh, no big doubt. game or small game? Hunting. Turkey's big game. Man. Big game. Yeah, big walk and hunt or sit and hunt? Walk and hunt. Yeah, walk and I can't sit. Bank either. fish or boat fish? All the above. Uh, but, yeah, I like bank. <laughs> uh, pecan or pecan? Is that how you? Pecan. pecan. Coyote or coyote? Uh, I say both, but coyote usually most. Bradford pear or Cleveland select? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Neither. That's the right answer. All right. Lastly, uh, Smokey the Bear or Bob the Burner? Oh, oh Burner Bob. Goodness. All right. Good answers. Bing. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know uh, Burner Bob, Bob the Burner. Oh yeah, for sure. It's like a. a oh, I know y'all know okay. about it, but uh, you know, Smokey the Bear came along years ago to try to convince people not to use fire on the landscape. Uh, it's more to stop wildfires but mm-hmm. you know how the public the, mis- the public misinterpret changed it yeah and uh so all of a sudden this bob the burner guy came along and he's got his own suit and everything and yeah. he promotes fire mm-hmm. good fire that's pretty cool yes um but uh do we have a trivia question or do we have an advertisement we do we do have a trivia question uh so normally we ask our guests a question and if you get it right then one of our listeners who left a review uh gets a prize and so the prize this week will be a mossy oak allen backpack and the reviewer is bradley d 
3601. Uh, thanks for leaving us a review. So I have a pretty teed up question. So, uh, and you have a phone, a friend sitting next to you on the couch. Yeah, no pressure. But the question is, what is the Alabama state tree? That's near and dear to my heart. The longleaf pine. Yep. All that's right. it. Jake's in Longleaf Country, so. Yeah. Oh, he, man. He, he that's, loves it. That's an incredible tree. Uh, I grew up hunting where there was a native stand, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't uh, know if the Longleaf special. Alliance Clark, Clark is County. still around, but yep. that's another good organization. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the they, yeah, yeah I think they, they, they work with Burner Bob yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you um, know, the. You can't hurt them either. <laughs> yeah, I know. It. Yeah. You can't burn them to yeah, a crisp. Yeah, it's amazing. Even, you know, the. The, when they're in the grass stage, you know, these things are sitting there, and you run this hot head fire over them, and they're just this little black bump sitting right there. Some the of a cartoon. Yeah, it's like, well, there's no way this thing's going to make it. And sure enough, they like needles. Yeah. yeah, they do. So it's crazy. Cool species. You know, yes. they've, oh, yeah. they've got them from the lower coastal plain, and then they've got that montane mm-hmm. variety. So that's where I grew up in the Piedmont, and so it's kind of like the, the north north georgia and north, yeah i, I remember for, alabama. Uh, for dendrology they took us to alabama to some you know really rocky upland mm-hmm. stuff in the bankhead forest mm-hmm. and showed us you know montane is that like spanish for mountainous or something yeah but uh you know so they can handle coastal sandy soils and they can grow up on top of rocky mountains there's just different yeah. varieties they can live it. forever i i, I once uh, got to go and kind of tour and hunt for a couple of days on the largest contiguous stand in the country down there in South yeah. Alabama. The Miller family owned. Yeah. It was like it was 50, no, 69,000 acres in one track. Man. All lonely. My goodness. Unbelievable. That'd and it was awesome. so cool. Yeah. Man. Yeah, just like a, like a, like, you know, four county area of quail plantation. Look, That's you know, crazy. All the old, you know, it was just thin down to just old, old, old big trees, you yeah. know, everywhere. Was there any wildlife there? Oh, God. <laughs> Turkey's like crazy. You don't have to worry about your smoke when you're burning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. That's awesome. It was incredible. Well, uh, that was a good discussion. Uh, did we learn anything today? Burn, baby, burn, for sure. <laughs> but we, I could have told you that, though. Um, yeah, I, you know, um, we learned that the best of us in caring for the stuff God gave us, pay attention to everything and aren't just like selfishly trying to gain one thing from it, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, I might selfishly be trying to get a great duck hunting place for me, for my family, for my kids or whatever, but the best of us is what we should look up to. And that's these guys because they care about everything. Yeah. going on and so that's what i learned uh today and i think it gets reinforced we we have quite a few in the halls here that are i would put in that category but especially you guys so thank you for bringing that awareness we're not going anywhere as a society without that increased awareness of all this stuff god gave us and how to take care for it and there's such a a blind spot on so much of this i know that's why y'all got so fascinated with it yeah you know because not only you had your blind spot, but you knew so many others did. So yeah. thank you for what you do. Yeah. yeah I, I just, it. you know, it just reiterated, uh, never quit being curious about all this stuff and trying to learn. You know, keep an, keep an open mind, listen to what everybody has to say. It leads to a great, li- great life. You know, we just lost Coach Leach, and they talked about he was an amazing person, and he, he made everyone better because he had this innate curiosity all the time. 
And then we just lost one of my very best friends ever, Mr. George Bryan, and that same thing at his funeral. He was so curious about everything and everybody. And it just led to helping everyone around them, not just their own curiosity. So that's a great point, Dudley. Yeah. And sp- speaking of Mr. Bryan, we need to go we need to go look at the golf course with the two of y'all. Yes. Or all of us. We should. Yep. Yeah. Look look at the rough that we did. It's pretty cool. So it's really yeah, cool. We'd love to see it. I think I'm supposed to say goodbye, but uh, good, say goodbye, Mac. Goodbye, Mac. <laughs> Get us out of here, Dudley. All right. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.